I am Plant on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. His is one of the more conspicuous and recognizable faces in the Metro Vancouver region. We see him, unfortunately, when there's bad news, and with the recent spate of gun violence, we see Frank Jang more often than we should. I had the idea of asking Sergeant Jang on the program because I thought it would be interesting to get some insight into his work, as well as uh, what's happening in the region as well. Uh, seeing him as regularly as we do, being of uh, Asian descent, I thought it would be useful uh, to get to know someone we see but know too little about. At a time when there is a rise in anti-Asian hatred, who better to talk to than someone who we see all the time about why he chose a career in law enforcement? Sergeant Frank Jang is the uh, media relations officer for the Integrated Homicide Investigation Team. It is the largest homicide investigation unit in Canada. I hit uh, serves 29 RCMP communities and three municipal police communities from Pemberton to Boston Bar. Sergeant Jang has been with IHIT for nearly nine years. Before that, he was with the RCMP for eight years. The Twitter handle is at the Frank Jang. Please uh, welcome to the Plant Online program, Sergeant Frank Jang. Sergeant Jang, good morning. Hi, good morning, Joe. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. Um, we're talking uh, at the end of a week where um, there has been a great deal of gun violence in, in Metro Vancouver. Um, a lot of people are scared. Uh, but when we hear in the, in, the, in the media, you know, that someone is known to police or, or um, that, quote, there is no threat to the public, should we be, uh, say, should we take comfort in that? Mm. <laughs> Great question. Um, so known to police, I realize it's a term that we throw around so often as police officers, as police media people. And that's often uh, the, the feedback that I get from the public is, well, what exactly do you mean by that? Uh-huh. That is so vague. And so it's a term that we use because, first of all, we want to alleviate concerns, obviously. So when we say known to police, first of all, what we're trying to get at is it it wasn't random, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So known to police, often we use it uh, to mean uh, people in the gang life or somebody who's had a criminal past or a history of criminality. And so we're implying there that, you know, this was not random and and perhaps even targeted, right? Mm -hmm. So... You know, that, that's the intent behind that term is to really alleviate uh, people's worries that it wasn't just somebody that, you know, this person uh, was targeting for death or for murder, um, but, you know, there, was, there is a story behind it, right? But I, I think it's, uh, it's kind of, um, it's really, you know, uh, I, I guess had the, the other, you know, the, the, the opposite effect in that uh, there's a lot of, you know, questions about, well, you know, can you be more specific? What do you mean by known to police mm-hmm. and, and things like that? But um, and the fact that you know, and then you brought up the threat to public safety, uh, which is really the utmost concern for us as well as the public. And you know, especially with these shootings that we've seen in broad daylight mm-hmm. in public places, you know, it, it's hard to say. I I think we all realize it. it's hard for us to keep saying that there is no further risk to the public. We all get that. Mm-hmm. When, you know, when somebody shoots a gun, there's bullets flying uh, through public space. You know, those bullets don't discriminate. It's going to land wherever it's going to land. And so we, we understand that. So uh, I, I think we're, we're trying to say less and less of that mm-hmm. um, because, indeed, yeah, it is, uh, there is a threat to people's safety. However, you know, and, you know, knock on wood, fortunately it hasn't happened where those bullets have met, uh, you know, uh, hit an unsuspecting member of the public. So after the the shooting April 21st at the the uh, Langley Rec Center, there um, you were seen in, in the new, on the news um, saying that you know the people should get angry because you know there were children around um, that morning. Um, so so what do you tell people? I mean, what can people do? I mean, um, you know, pe- people you know think they, they they saw something or know something, and but it might not mean anything. I mean, do, do you suggest those people call in with tips in the sort? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there's what I like to say. There's different levels of witnesses, levels of cooperators. So, um, you know, if we go, if we start at, the, you know, uh, I guess at one level is it's just the the member of the public, right? Mm-hmm. Just somebody somebody who was in this case uh, with the homicide of Todd Gunberg in uh, in Langley. You know, there were children there. There were parents. But it happens at 9 o'clock in the morning, Joe, right? So mm-hmm. there's parents dropping off kids at the daycare. You know, there's an ice rink. We understand with COVID perhaps less people, but, you know, it's a public place nonetheless, right? Mm-hmm. 
were appealing to those people who were just incidentally they were there for whatever purpose you know to enjoy the recreational facilities if they saw or heard anything suspicious if they were driving through the area and they have dash cam and and this is something we can further discuss later but that dash cam video is proving so and so much more important when it comes to our investigations these days if they have these things we need them to cooperate first of all and to provide that information and for the most part we're getting it from the public absolutely but then there's another level of cooperators or witnesses, which is people who are further in the know, right? So getting further, you know, into the center. Um, so people, so who I mean by that? People who perhaps are close to the perpetrators, right? Maybe mm-hmm. family, maybe friends who um, are not necessarily complicit in the actual offense of the homicide, but maybe they heard from... Uh, a certain group or from you know, people in the inner circle of these people who are doing the shooting, right? We need those people to reach out. And I get it. People are going to use, you know, words like snitch, rat, mind your own business, this, this uh, code of silence, right? Yeah. You know, we don't talk to the police. Well, that's great for the, per- for the people doing the killing, right? They want to they wanna save their own necks. However, um, you know, it, it, it weighs on people's conscience when, when you have that information. We want, you know, we want to do something about it, and that's why we're appealing to those people who aren't necessarily part of the, the crime, but they know something. They heard something, right? We need those people to come forward. Um, and those people, you know, we're trying to target them because, um, you know, we've had a couple of a few incidences where they, where they have come forward, mm-hmm. um, but not enough, not right. enough. So, so we keep hearing also that, that that we're in the midst of a gang war or a turf war. Um, it, we've had these these before, we've had these sort of spates of shootings, uh, you know, in the past. What has history told us in terms of how these things play out? Yeah, if history is uh, proven anything, yeah, there's it comes in you know there's peaks and valleys, there's periods sure, yeah. of quietness, uh, silence when it comes to gang violence, gun violence, and then you see these spurts, and we're kind of in that. You know the the spurt I, I yeah. suppose right now, um, but you know, money and drugs, um, power, all of these things come into the, play a part in the equation when it comes to to gangs. And and uh, you know a lot of the gang experts, the you know academics will tell you that um, the the phenomenon that we're seeing at least here in the Lower Mainland is that. Uh, as opposed to other places, perhaps when you compare it to places like Los Angeles or Chicago in the United States, uh-huh. you know, gangs here are really for the money. It's not so much for the color, right? It's not, you know, bloods and cribs, reds and, you know, reds versus blues sure, and whatnot, sure. but it, it's it's almost a, a uh, money-making enterprise for these guys, right? So when there when there is violence, it often, money has a part to play, whether somebody lost a load of drugs or somebody didn't pay back a debt, or perhaps even somebody is wanting to switch sides, where, where you know we've seen that all too often, is uh, there's um, switching of allegiances of gang associations, and so you know there's I, I hesitate to to name these people because you know notoriety is what mm-hmm. they seek, and notoriety is yeah. something I refuse to give them. But we've heard of you know Red Scorpions, United Gang, you know United Nations gangs, you know obviously people have heard of the Hell's Angels. Uh, more recently, you know, the Brothers Keepers and all these different names uh, followed by group, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, family names followed by groups, and so on and so on. And, um, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why this, uh, these vi- you know, the violence takes place. Uh, but, uh, anyways, it's, uh, right now uh, we're seeing a, a bit of that violence. But I'll just point out that not all, not all of the violence that we've seen lately is, is associated gangs. Right, so we have to keep that in mind as well. Right, so a lot of the ages too are that, that we're hearing about in, in the news are quite young. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. so, so what do you think has to happen, Frank, in, in in our community, so that a life of crime isn't attractive to young people? That's that's a loaded question. Um, I don't know if I, I suppose I can add my opinion based on my experience as a, as a homicide yeah. uh, detective and as a police officer, but. I'm sure there's a lot of people uh, more credible than I uh, that can chime in, and hopefully they do chime in. But, you know, it's, 
I think we, we're seeing more and more too often these days where they start so young, right? Mm-hmm. Gangs recruiting kids as young as, like, less than 10 years old, I, w- I would think, in some, some cases, right? And, you know, they're, they're attracting them to this lifestyle. They're deceiving them into this lifestyle through money, flashing cash, flashing jewelry. I've heard uh, instances where they would pick up these kids, uh, take them downtown to a fancy restaurant at one of our fanciest hotels in Vancouver, and they would find, you know, dine and, you know, dine and wine them and, you know, um, give them gifts. And, you know, for a kid who's 9, 10, 11, right, mm-hmm. who's maybe getting, you know, five bucks a week as an allowance for mom and dad, uh, this is seductive. And when you add into the, uh, you know, the appeal, the what they're watching through popular media, through television shows and, and, and movies, where it's often that gangsterism, that gang lifestyle is glorified to young people. It's, it's sometimes, it, it's so seductive that they can't overcome. I, I think a lot of kids, they, they have good judgment, right? Hopefully for mom and dad who have instilled them good values, but that peer pressure, uh, the money, the attention, for a lot of kids, that's just too much to overcome. And that's the, the evil and I don't, and I, and I hesitate to use that word because that's a strong word to mm-hmm. use. But it's really evil what these recruiters, these gang recruiters, are doing, and that's why we work so darn hard to, you know, tr- to go to the schools, to go to these after, you know, after school programs, and really uh, be that block, be that intermediary to say, you know, you're not going to have our kids. So, so I'm in Vancouver. I live in Vancouver. Yeah. Um, there was news uh, in, in recent days about the school liaison program being um, phased out here in, in Vancouver at the end of the school year next month. Right. Does a program like that, does, does that play a, a, a serious part in terms of, of um, say, uh, affecting kids at a young age for, for the better? Well, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, Joe, because I can speak from personal experience. I was a school liaison officer mm-hmm. back in 2006 to 2007, 2008, mm-hmm. uh, during my first posting at, uh, with the North Vancouver RCMP. So I know f- firsthand the, the value, the immense value of that program. So I'll just quickly give you a story, if I may. Of, yeah. um, I, I had kind of the rougher schools, if you will. Uh, one of the schools was uh, a school called Keithland. It's no, it's no longer in existence, actually. bulldozed it uh, when I was in uh, Lynn Valley last month for uh, that horrendous uh, the stabbing right. incident. Yeah, the, um, mm-hmm. I hadn't been back there in so many years, and I drove by the area where Keithland used to be, and it's gone. Uh, it's just bulldozed. It was right by the highway, off of Mountain Highway exit. And um, in 2006, uh, my first day there, I walked in in my uniform, you know, perfectly pressed with my hat on. And one of the kids actually came up to me and said, um, hey, morning, pig. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was my introduction to the school, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, 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 don't, I hadn't been called that word uh, before that and since that, but uh, that, that uh, young fellow called me that uh, term, and I was kind of taken aback, obviously. And but I said, you know what? Um, okay, hi. Well, my name's not Pig. My name is uh, Frank Constable Jang, and uh, I'll be back. So the following week, I, I said, Hey, look, Sarge, I'm going to uh, put my uniform in the locker, and I'm going to show up there in um, just you know basketball shorts, basketball, my you know my Air Jordans, and I'm going to try to connect with these kids. Is that okay? Well, yeah. Just make sure you got a police radio and you're able to respond to calls. No problem. Perfect. Thanks for the cooperation, boss. And I showed up at the school in my Jordans, in my baggy shorts, and um, I like to say I, I took this kid to school, <laughs> basketball style. A lot of, you know, a lot of uh, trash talking. And you got to keep in mind, I was 24, 25 at the time, Joe. Uh-huh. And, I, and I looked, you know, um, maybe it's the Korean jeans. I, I don't know. But I looked uh, maybe 15, 16, <laughs> right, 100 and, 180, 170 pounds. And uh, I, I, I think some of the teachers mistook me for a student there that day. And so we had a lot of fun. Yeah. The point being is we had a lot of fun. There was a lot of friendly trash talking. And actually that kid who called me a pig, it took a little while, but he ended up calling me Frank. And we ended up, you know, I can't say we were friends, mm-hmm. but we were cordial. And, you know, he gave me the nod up, and I gave him the nod up every time I saw him afterwards. And, um, you know, actually months later, uh, he fell into a real 
bad situation with some gang members. Uh-huh. And I was able to help them out then and, you know, go over there and do some intervention and, and meet with the parents. And so it really worked out. And I tell that story because it's a real neat story, not because of anything that I've done, but because of the, the immense value of having a police officer um, in the school, become, you know, being involved with the youth. And the point is we're not there to arrest these kids, right? We're there as because we're part of society. You know, we are considered uh, we're perceived as an authority figure as part of society. And to have positive, healthy relationships with the police is part of being is part of growing up and becoming a responsible member of society, right? And I hope a lot of people agree with me. I mean, that's my point of view. I, I guess the, the, the larger question, and it's not just in Vancouver, but, you know, this is something that's happened across North America, um, is that a lot of people think that law enforcement hasn't done enough to address or even understand the concerns of certain communities. And that's why there was this push here in Vancouver to, to get rid of the program. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I'm wondering, you know, what needs to happen? Is it a PR problem? Is there greater engagement that needs to happen? I mean, is there something that that, um, that people in your line of work need to do better? I think that question goes beyond me, but I'll give it a, I'll give it a try. I mean, I... I... I understand. I, I, I'm monitoring the situation that's happening in Vancouver, just as an onlooker, not as a. Sure. Obviously, I'm not a VPD member. But we're seeing this, you know, in, in other cities across. You know, we're, we're defund the police as an issue. Yeah. I mean, well, what do you say to to those people who you know who who call for the defunding of the police? Uh, please don't. Yeah. <laughs> please, please do fund the police. Please do support the police. I understand. There's a lot of things going on in society, North American society. Right. We, we all saw the same footage, you know, George Floyd and what else, and elsewhere. I think in Canada, I don't know if it's the same situation as, as what the, uh, the folks in, in the U.S. are facing. Uh, I mean, it's, 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 it's sad to see because, I mean, we're there to help people, plain and simple, Joe. I, I, I don't want to get into the politics of it. Um, yeah. Obviously, I'm an active police uh, RMP mm-hmm. officer, but the, 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 here, this is... This is my answer. Look, 17 years ago, I joined um, the RCMP, became a police officer. I didn't think I was going to be one, but uh, I'm glad I did become one. And the reason I joined was simply to help people. When my recruiter asked me, you know, why do you want to become a police officer, the, the answer was simple. Uh, I want to help people. And that's usually the answer that a lot of us give. Now, after a while, you know, that, that answer becomes a bit more com- complicated and we add on to it and we unpack it as we go. But the, the, the spirit behind what, what we do is plain and simple. And that, it goes back to that statement is we want to help people. And as police officers, we help people directly. It's not an indirect, uh, you know, abstract philosophical way we, we help people. It's directly, you know, hands on. You know, we help people when they try to harm other people, and we help people when they try to harm themselves, right? And often we get harmed in the process. So um, what I'd like to see is actually for people to hopefully regain that respect for the police and have an understanding before you judge police officers to really walk a mile in, you know, walk a mile in their boots uh, because it's hard, especially these days. It's tremendously hard. So you mentioned that, that um, law enforcement uh, wasn't an inevitable career path for you. I mean, what did you want to do as a kid? Oh, um, I wanted to do quite a few things, actually. Um, but uh, as I grew older and I went, in, I went to uh, university and UBC here locally, uh, my intention was to go into actually social work mm-hmm. uh, was one consideration. The second one, I was actually I, want, I was thinking of going into uh, a ministry as, as a pastor. Um, but really the, the bottom line for me was I wanted to be in a position to help people um, directly, hands-on, right? Be the feet, be the hands, right, to help people. But, you know, it was, it was a friend of mine who actually was an RCMP officer. He came over for dinner. We had a good two-, three-hour chat, and by the end of the dinner, I was sold. And I p- applied the next day, went for my exam a couple of months later, did all the, you know, the, the background checks, and it was a long process, maybe a year, year and a half, mm-hmm. but it was worth it. I look back, and I have no regrets whatsoever. Were, were, were there people, say, in your family who, who, who um, when you decided to do this, um, mm-hmm. who, who maybe were concerned or, or dissuaded you from, from wanting to go into law enforcement? 
Yeah, surprisingly not. Um, you know, I, I, I mentor quite a few young police officers. Uh, my back, my ethnic background is, is Korean. I was born in Korea, and I, and I immigrated to Canada when I was six. Grew up, you know, my whole life uh, here in the Lower Mainland and in the southwest side of Vancouver. And, you know, surprisingly, my parents were very supportive. But I'll tell you this, Jill, uh, before I became a, became a police officer, I, I joined the military as a reservist mm. right after high school when I was 17. I did that for about uh, six, seven years um, before I had to quit. Back then, there was a rule you couldn't um, be part of two federal agencies. So, unfortunately, I had to quit. But uh, when I wanted to join the reserve, there was a lot of backlash from my parents who said, you know, why do you want to join the Army and things like that. Mm. But um, I, I proved them wrong there because they saw the value of being a part of the armed forces. Uh, and uh, so when, when I made the decision that I wanted to be a police officer with National Police Force, they were, they were already on board. They, they were sold by my friend as well, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and I get a lot of cultures, some Asian cultures, that they, you know, they have perhaps a negative perception of law enforcement, uh, depending on their experiences in other countries, other cultures. But um, I think uh, we still enjoy a, a very good reputation, uh, the RCMP does. And so there, there wasn't a whole lot of pushback from my parents, no. Well, let's talk about IHIT, the organization that, that um, sure. you work for, that you're the spokesperson for. Um, how, how big is the organization in terms of, of numbers? I mean, how many people work in your building, for example? We are the largest homicide unit in Canada. And I'm still trying to figure out if we are the largest homicide unit in the world. That's going to take a little bit more work. But um, we have uh, just over 100, 110 employees. Mm-hmm. Okay, so 80 are sworn police officers, detectives, right? And about 30 civilian staff. And civilian staff, we, you know, it, it takes a lot of work to run a place like AHIT, transcribing statements. Um, administration, the cars, the phones, the logistics. Mm-hmm. So it takes a lot of people to run this place, um, but just over 100 people. Yeah. And, and so, so what sort of geography do you cover? I mean, the, the, there was that um, uh, murder a, 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 at Coal Harbor a few weeks ago. Right. Th- that's, I, I guess, a VPD would, would um, deal with that. Would IHIT get involved? That's right. No, no. So, so IHIT covers a very large geographic area. So where we cover pretty much the whole entire Lower Mainland District from Pemberton, just north of Whistler, mm-hmm. all the way east to Boston Bar, right, just past Hope. Uh, and uh, so Boston Bar is our most eastern uh, boundary. And then you also have Seashell, Sunshine Coast, mm-hmm. um, off of the, off of the, uh, the mainland. Mm-hmm. And so pretty much everybody except Vancouver and Delta. So we, uh, you know, a few days ago there was the homicide at the Scottsdale Mall mm-hmm. on, on the Surrey Delta border. That happened in Delta's jurisdiction, so the, the Delta police would have conduct of that homicide. There was a, a shooting in Surrey um, earlier this week, and uh, another phrase that we hear in the media that I hit took over that investigation. Mm-hmm. Does I hit determine that, or does the Surrey RCMP say, you know, you, you have to come in? How does that work? No. So, so the. Uh, the protocol is that whenever there's a homicide, a murder, and not just that, but also uh, missing persons where, uh, where foul play is suspected, right? Uh, that is all part of AHIT's mandate. So um, let's just use a very um, obvious example. So a shooting at, um, you know, 100th Street and uh, 152 here in Surrey. Uh, shooting occurred. There's a victim with gunshot wounds. He's been pronounced dead at scene. That is an eye hit investigation. Yeah, it's it's not. You know, there isn't a discussion. Well, who takes it? That's you know, mm-hmm. um, it, it's eye hit. They call in eye hit. We take uh, we take over the investigation, and we will obviously work in partnership with that home uh, police jurisdiction, which in this case would be Surrey, right? I see. And um, so yours yours is the face that we see, the the voice that we hear when something bad happens. How soon after an incident are you you on the scene? Say. Um. I, I like to say pretty soon. Uh-huh. Um, really, when there's an incident, uh, my my phone lights up, and it lights up 24 hours a day. So uh, I get phone calls at 2 p.m. and 2 a.m. because I think we all understand when mm-hmm. there's a, when there's a murder in the community, it's yeah. big news. It's big news. There's lights and sirens. Oftentimes, you see 10, you know, plus police uh, vehicles in the area. Uh, residents are calling 
their families, their, their news, and with the advent, you know, with the proliferation of social media these days, you know, everybody's on Twitter sure, yeah. talking about it. So, it, it's not uh, my my phone. I get I get the phone call as soon as it happens, right? Yeah. And we don't, uh, you know, I don't have the luxury of waiting for a day or two. We have to respond because there's so much public interest in homicides. And the number one question, obviously, is am I safe? Right. right? Is yep. my family safe? So that's the, that's the question we have to answer people. And that's what, and going back to the known to police and, you know, terms that we use, um, we use that because, we, because people are concerned, first and foremost, for their own safety. So when you get on scene uh, at an incident, um, what do you do? I mean, you're not there uh, talking to witnesses, are you, or collecting evidence? No, no, those days are, I guess, uh, behind me, that um, uh-huh. I used to do that for for five years as an investigator, uh, but as as a spokesperson for IHIT, my job is to provide timely, accurate information to not just the media but the, but the public as well. So when we're when when I attend the scene, when I go to the scene and I, and we do a news conference, a media availability at the scene, it's not just media folks that come to these things. It's residents. There's residents there, hmm. right? Because everybody, first of all, when you have a bunch of cameras from CTV, Global, CBC, and everyone else, it's, gonna, it's going to attract attention, right? right? If the lights and sirens haven't already. So people come out, people, uh, you know, make a semicircle, and they're listening uh, to me deliver the news to provide an update and to, you know, uh, hopefully provide a reassuring message to them. So it's not just about, you know, building relationships with the media. It's building relationships with the community. And so when you're when you're in front of in front of the the, the media briefing them as as, as you do, um, how do you balance the privacy of the victim as well as the the rights of the accused and and uh, uh, the public's right to know? I mean, I, I guess you're, as you're standing there talking, taking questions, answering questions, um, you're juggling these balls in the air, aren't you? Right, absolutely. And that is my job. You you said it well. It's it's how do you balance you know the right of the public to know. Uh, versus the right of the victim to privacy. And, you, and the thing is, this is a very important point, and I think a point that not, pe- not a lot of people understand and maybe even some media folks don't understand, is that according to our laws, according to our even provincial and federal privacy laws, a victim of homicide who has now died, mm-hmm. who is no longer with us, that person has a right, has an expectation of privacy. Okay? So when we release names, we have to keep that in mind. And we, we release names because we know by doing so it, it helps our investigation. It's, it's hard to ask for people for information when you don't know, you know, we don't, when you don't let people know who's the person who died, right? Yeah. It only makes sense. So that's why we, we often release the name. Um, but it's a, fine, it's a fine balance, and it's really, I guess, up to people like me to walk that fine line. And um, it's, I guess that's where the difficulty of the job lies because there's pressure immense pressure from the media and the public. Um, I, I get asked all the time, Jang, you know, do, you, do you have anything more for us? Right? Do you have anything more for us to tell the people? Right? Um, it, it's always, you know, they're, they want more information. However, we have to keep in mind uh, the court process. And when we uh, provide uh, too much information, information we shouldn't be sharing, at least not at the onset, uh, it could jeopardize the the trial, the judicial proceedings later on, mm-hmm. and it could really taint the testimony of potential witnesses that we haven't yet spoken to. So when we say it was a red car, it was a maroon car, it was a brown car, right? Mm-hmm. People take that as fact. So uh, it might not be a maroon car because the witnesses that we've spoken with, you know, they, they describe it as maroon, but perhaps it's red, right? And there's a potential witness out there who saw it as red, who would describe it as red, but now because they heard it being described as maroon, now they're hesitating in their minds. We've, you know, we've planted doubts in their minds, and now they're hesitating to come forward because they're questioning their own version of events, right? right. Do, you, do you follow? So, yeah. you know, it's, uh, you ha- we have to um, be careful of the information that we release to the public. So how do you view the relationship with the media? I mean, some you know, as we see sometimes these clips of the of reporters asking you tough questions or, or, or um, per- persistent questions. Um, do you view it as an adversarial one? Not at all. Not at all. And I know some 
might say, sure, right, uh, we don't believe you. But uh, I'll be uh, perfectly honest with you. I, I look, at, look at it as a very professional relationship, um, even friendly, but certainly uh, cordial, for sure. And I understand, and I think all media relations officers do, that the media, they have a very important role to play, right, because they're there to represent the public who want to ask the questions. Um, and so it's their, it's their job, frankly, to, to push people like us for those answers. And it's the responsibility of people like me to know the line that you cannot cross, but go right up to that line and provide as much information as you can without crossing that line. And for me, I think uh, I'd like to say I have a very good understanding and a good relationship with all of our, I know pretty much all of them just because I see them all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have a very good relationship, and I, and I tell them all the time, like, there, you know, there's some information I can't uh, divulge, and they get that. And I, I, I even want to say further, you know, further to that, I think we have a, a good enough relationship where they don't even ask me that because they know, like, look, we understand that Frank can't tell us that, right? Yeah. So it's all about relationships, you know, media relations. That R word is so important, right? So when I um, uh, watch TV shows or, or movies where, where the, the, they're, they're depicting the relationship between uh, the media and the police, um, uh, we see things like um, re- reporting of details that might jeopardize uh, the laying of a charge or, or as you mentioned a moment ago, um, the judicial process later on. Does that stuff sort of happen? I mean, the other thing I noticed in like Law & Order, for example, the, the um, members of the press can cross the yellow tape or, or um, talk to detectives, um, even, even look at evidence up close. Does that happen here? And Have you seen that happen in your experience? No, no. Um, I, I think everybody understands that there's TV shows and movies and then there's real life. Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll say this. Uh, people think, you know, uh, TV shows and movies are interesting. Um, no, real life is, is far more interesting. It's, you know, art imitating life, and life is a lot messier. It's a lot more complicated, and certainly it doesn't get solved in one hour or less. But, yeah, we don't, you know, the public cannot cross the tape. Uh, the media cannot cross the tape. Um, we are, we run a very professional organization here at IHIT, and, you know, it, it's all about protecting the investigation, right? And uh, going back to, you know, working with the media and the public, it's, it's not that we don't want to provide information. And lately we've seen it, um, there's a very, you know, I think everybody knows her at this point, but Trina Hunt right. is a lady that uh, uh, was missing for three months. So many friends and family uh, we're out looking for her all throughout the Lower Mainland, all throughout the Tri-Cities. I don't think you can go two blocks in the Tri-Cities area without seeing a poster mm-hmm. of her on a lamppost. Um, and it was just recently uh, revealed uh, by us to the public that, you know, it was her remains that were discovered in Hope um, just a few weeks ago. And uh, but, but that's a case where we can't provide a lot of information right now just because it's, uh, it's a very active investigation an ongoing investigation. We hope to have an update uh, soon. Mm-hmm. But, you know, um, there's, you know, I, 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 I want to share the information. We want to share the information, you know, that we've discovered. But first and foremost is the integrity of the investigation, right? And that's a term we often use probably just as much as known to police. But the integrity of the investigation, that is paramount. That is important because when we go to trial, we want to say, that there's only a certain people that knew that information, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the whole world didn't know it because we, we put it on, you know, the front page of the newspaper. So, uh, again, that integrity of the investigation is so important. It's number one. So you mentioned uh, that's a high-profile case, the, the, the Hunt uh, missing persons case. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are other ones that, that we, we've uh, noticed in, in, in recent months where there's a great deal of speculation online, you know, in the comments on Facebook yep. and Twitter and the sort. So when you see all that stuff and you see all kinds of um, uh, ideas about uh, who or, or what or whatever, um, do you think you have a responsibility to, to uh, say, uh, dissuade people from speculating as they do online? Well, first of all, I'm aware of all of it. Uh, Facebook, Twitter, 
on and on, all the blogs, all the chat rooms. I've seen it all. Now, there's, I guess there's a, you know, from what I've seen, it's people who really care about what's happened to this case. It's a, it's a very unusual case, obviously, right? Because mm-hmm. Trina Hunt, um, she had no criminal background whatsoever. Every person that we've, you know, spoken to, who's spoken of her, is they speak so highly of her. And, you know, everybody knows her photograph by now, um, the smile, like a very uh, kind-looking lady, and it's just tragic what happened to her. But, you know, there's there's talk, and I think for the most part it's just talk, and people, you know, they have their, you know, they want to add, you know, their two cents of what they think happened. But really it's not going to affect our investigation. We're, we're going to continue the investigation. I mean, the people who know, who are in the know, that's us, the police. Right? And so whatever there's talk on social media, it's not influencing our actions. Right? And, and it should never. Um, but if, you know, if there's people with information about what happened to her, like there are material witnesses, we need those people to come forward. And I haven't seen that in any of these chat rooms. I think it's just people, yeah. uh, they have you know, their own theories and conjecture. But you know, um, uh, you know, I, I see that as, as harmless. But, you know, uh, if people are getting too far into it, you know, you've you got to keep in mind you're, you're not the police. So you, you might want to, you know, spend your energy elsewhere, yeah. a bit more constructive. Yeah, the case that I was thinking about was the, the, uh, the case of the Filipino lady. Um, in, in, yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in Burnaby, um, and I, I recall uh, hearing this or reading this in, in the media, and I don't know if this came from IHIT, saying that, th- that there was so much speculation as to what happened in that case, that perhaps um, you know th- that should cease. I mean, mm-hmm. did, did that come from my head, or was that from the family? No, I don't. I don't think that came from us. Uh, so, Ma Cecilia. Yeah. Um, so that investigation was solved. Um, charges were forwarded. I would have to. I I, I say, rel- relatively quickly. I right. think it, yeah. it was all you know a week or less. And there was, uh, I think, in a lot of people's minds, and perhaps even some police, that you know this was a file that that was an investigation that may take a little while. Certainly not, you know, solved in less than a week, right? But there was a lot of work that went into that investigation. Um, just investigators working really around the clock, and you know, it's. I don't think there was room for a lot of conjecture to to develop because we got the answer right away. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, yeah, I don't know if that's sure. your No, question. no, absolutely. Yeah, no, I think that does, yeah. Um, the other thing, just back to the relationship with the media, um, last month, uh, Rumina Dea of Global, um, I guess, attended a press conference on another matter and then got you on camera to talk about a specific case. <laughs> um, uh, does, does, that, does that happen often in terms of... of um, uh, because it, it, it didn't seem friendly. Does that um, um, sort of getting doorstop by the media? Does that happen regularly with you? No, no. Uh, that was the first time. But you know, it goes back to I think uh, the media knowing their role, and us, the police media spokespersons, knowing our role, and. You know, our job is to take questions from the media. It, 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 I think that well, that was the first time that's happened to me in four years in this role. But you know, we're uh, I suppose she has every, uh, every right to come up to me. Um, we were both wearing masks, so we were you know abiding by health protocols, mm-hmm. and we were outside. But uh, she obviously was there to ask me a question about a different investigation, and hopefully I answered it uh, satisfactorily for her and for the public. But you know, I'll just just because we're on that issue, and uh, it's something I supp- I can't talk about it just because it's it's before the courts, and uh, I think it's, the decision is still under review. Mm-hmm. But that's what I was trying to get at. But um, but to answer your question, Joe, no, it, it doesn't happen to me often. Uh, it was the first time in four years, and I, and I've done um, as of yesterday. It's been my you know, 173rd uh, news conference media availability, so and 173 uh, goes at it. That was the first time that's happened. 
Um, I was on the the iHit website and and um, looking at what was on there, and and I was wondering why your media availabilities, these these press conferences that you have, aren't available like um, you know as an archive of, of uh, even streaming live. Is that something that that um, you folks at iHit are thinking about in, in the future, maybe? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, we're we're developing our uh, presence through social media right now. We have Twitter. Um, which is a very uh, important platform to get information out. But we're uh, working, uh, developing our uh, videography, uh, actually um, podcasts. Um, funny enough that we're, we're ta- speaking on your podcast, but mm-hmm. we're, we're trying to develop our own. Um, but it's all in an effort to connect with our community, right? And we're trying to get, obviously, IHIT's name out there because we need people to understand who IHIT is. What is our mandate? What is our job? Because the next time, and hopefully not, but if a homicide happens in your area and I hit knocks on your door asking for video or for witnesses, hopefully that person understands the gravity of the situation, right? Because they saw I hit on YouTube or Twitter and they understand what they're all about, which is homicide, murders in the community. It's a serious business, right? So uh, we, are, we are trying to, to get out there um, to expand our presence on social media, um, but, you know, it's it's, it's myself, and I'm trying to recruit some others here to help me, but uh, it's in the works. It's in the works. So one of the reasons why I invited you on the program today was because you're one of um, the more uh, prominent faces, I mean, um, uh, just by virtue of the job title um, that, that we see in the media on a regular basis. Um, you also happen, as you mentioned a moment ago, to have Korean parents. Um, th- there is this rise in anti-Asian hatred that we're seeing you know, throughout the world, and, and it concerns a lot of us. Um, how do you view your own work, your own profile, in, uh, in, in terms of, of perhaps having um, a way for the wider community to, to have these important discussions as a society in terms of combating hate? I mean, did you see your job as, as, as playing a part in all of this? The... Wow, you just kept the loaded questions right to the end, eh, Joe? <laughs> that is... Uh... Wow, how much time we got, right? I think... Uh, it's, the know, I never... it's the internet. We have as much time <laughs> as we need, you know? I, I, um, I, I, don't, I don't think of my, uh, my profile, as you said. I, I, um, we're, we're cops, right? We're, we're police spokespeople, so I, don't, I, don't, I didn't know we really had a profile with the community. I always regarded my job as, you know, uh, know the facts, know the information, know what you can say, and to, con- to communicate that to the media because we need people to, uh, first of all, we need their help, but we also need to know that they're safe and what's going on in that community and what the police are doing. So that's how I, I look at, you know, my job. I understand, yeah, my, you know, because, you know, by the virtue of my job, my face is out there on social media and on, on, on the news and on TV. Um, and with the issue of Asian, you know, the hate, you know, the acts of the crime committed against Asians well, that, based on... I'll, I'll tell you my story, Frank. Sure, um, yes. So my parents are Filipino. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm like you. I grew up here. I, I never really thought... I mean, I w- was lucky enough not to, to um, encounter the hate that a lot of people are encountering nowadays. Right. And so I have this podcast, and I've been talking to people for over 17 years now. Um, on on different subjects, and I and I just thought I'll ask you to come on um, because um, you're someone that we see in the news regularly, and uh, you know I I can't think of uh, of anybody else who has who's had a, sort of a more positive influence in terms of of, of within the community. Uh, I'm sure young people come up to you all the time and ask you about your work and and say that they want to do what you do, um, and so. Uh, I'm thinking, you know, if if I have a podcast, why not have a dialogue with, with someone in the community about, you know, how we combat these issues of, of, of yeah. hatred, and and so I'm wondering, you know, has this come up in your work in 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 recent weeks and months in terms of say, you know, I mean, it obviously is a concern within the public. Mm-hmm. Um, what do we do? I mean, how do we have these conversations that we need to have? I think those conversations are being had. Um, I, 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 like yourself, Joe, I'm, I'm on social media quite a bit, and I see a lot of 
you know, celebrities who are of Asian descent, and they are initiating that conversation, which is so great to see, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, like yourself, I grew up here. Uh, I went to Churchill on the southwest side of Vancouver, and uh, I've been fortunate not to encounter uh, overt racism against me. So I, I know that's not the experience with a lot of right. people of Asian descent. Mm-hmm. For me, I've been fortunate to escape that. Um, but how do we deal with it? <laughs> that's a great question. How yeah. do you change the hearts of people who have hate in their hearts, right? Yeah. That's really the, the essence. Uh, I suppose we can have programs you know, and um, do segments on TV and let people know and hashtag this, hashtag that, and have campaigns, and which are all well-meaning. But, you know, like cops, we don't mess around. We, we kind of cut to the chase. We go right to the heart of it. And the heart of it is, how do you change the heart of somebody who wants to spill coffee and spit on people because their skin is yellow or they're Chinese or Filipino or Korean, right? For whatever reason. And perhaps it's not because of that person's ancestry. Maybe it's just because they have hate in their hearts for whatever reason. So how do you change that? Right? That's, that's a loaded question. It yeah. goes back to gangsters, killing gangsters. What, how do you change young people from taking a gun and, and putting it into another guy's brain and, and killing them? Right? So... That's a loaded question. I don't know if I have an answer for that, but I, I talk about this issue so often these days with my wife, with my with my mom, with my friends who are who are uh, who are Asians, uh-huh. and I can't stop, you know, that guy, that gal from committing a hate crime. But what I tell my my loved ones, my friends, is, you know, what can you do uh, in terms of personal safety, right? So as, as a cop who, you know, who's dealt a lot with personal safety presentations and things like that throughout my career, I always tell people, look, you know, just walk with a sense of purpose. Don't just, you know, kind of walk, you know, uh, meekly or like, you know, just like you're hanging out, but walk with purpose and walk like you're going somewhere or, you know, you're um, – if you're at a at a checkout line of a grocery store, and I, and I say this because I heard of a, a an instance where somebody was called a derogatory term. Mm-hmm. The lady was was Chinese, and somebody in the line said something to her. You know what can you do? And perhaps there's nothing you could do. Uh, he was going to do whatever he was going to do, or say whatever he was going to say. But you know maybe when you're at the checkout line, start a conversation with the cashier. Right? Yeah. Make your presence known. Right? Say hi, good morning. Um, you know, just be purposeful, and hopefully that will help deter people from, you know, um, trying to pick, you know, to pick on you. Yeah. But I, I try to think of, you know, what can we do to be mindful of our personal safety? Uh, because I, you know, we, we can't control what other people are going to do. And um, but yeah. it, it, it's so sad. It's 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 so distressing to see. Story after story of people, and not just uh, people of Asian descent, but obviously other, uh, you know, visible minorities, people of color, people of different sexual orientations that are being uh, abused and um, picked on because of, you know, because of who they are. Yeah, I guess we, those of us who have a voice, or, or you know, who, who you know, uh, are able to help other people. I mean, it, it's it's not enough just to be a bystander, is it? I mean, we do have to intervene when we need to, right? Hundred percent, hundred percent, and you know there's stories online of people doing exactly that, right? Not being a bystander, but people who are standing up and saying, "Hey, no, you can't do that, right? Yeah. I'm not, I'm not Asian, but look, you can't do that, right? That's wrong." And I think we need to celebrate those people, celebrate those stories in the media when we do hear of people standing up for their neighbor. That needs to be, you know, put on a pedestal, right? We need to hear of those stories, right? Because media is powerful, as you know, um, and we need to use positive stories to change the hearts and minds of people. How, how do you, um, because you get to see, unfortunately because of your job, you, you, you um, get to see, you know, often brutal, gruesome things. How do you um, not let that affect you when you go home? I mean, CTV has done, done interviews um, uh, with your predecessor, the woman who had your job previously, Jennifer, uh, yeah. yeah, talking about her experience um, and and how she had to uh, leave uh, the RCMP altogether. Um, 
what what's home life for you like? I mean, right. how do you deal with with you know the job? I mean, you're on call all the time, as you said earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, are you able to to relax when you get home? Yeah. <laughs> well, first of all, you mentioned Jennifer, and that's Staff Sergeant Jennifer Pound. She used to be the spokesperson for AHIT. Um, great officer, great person. Um, I've, I've known Jennifer for quite a number of years, and we all respect her. You know, and our thoughts are with her. And I, I kind of learned of her story through the media, kind of like everybody else. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I've been thinking of her a lot these days, especially in light of the story on the media about her. But you know, um, my story is, I I think, anyways, I have a very healthy uh, social network, a healthy um, way of coping. You know, I, I do a lot of activities with uh, with family, with friends. I have, you know, um, active with a lot of different things. And it's it's difficult, absolutely. When you, when you deal with murder, when you deal with families who are going through the worst of the worst, it is, it is difficult, absolutely. And there's a lot of uh, mechanisms in place. At IHA, we do regular psychological assessments. We see a psychologist annually just mm-hmm. to make sure you know, that we're okay, and, it, you know, that's definitely something we need, and it, it, it's great that our that our uh, managers have that in place for us. Uh, but it also, you know, I have a lot of colleagues that I confide in, and we, we talk it out, and w- case in point, the, the, the stabbing, the multiple stabbing incident that happened in North Vancouver right. not too mm-hmm. long ago, mm-hmm. uh, that was a very impactful event. Um, Probably people saw it on my face. Yeah, you got quite emotional. Yeah, yeah, and that wasn't scripted, and I don't think hopefully it didn't come across in any way that it was scripted. It was I had things in my mind that I wanted to say, the facts of the case as we knew it at that point. Mm -hmm. Everything else was kind of off the cuff, and I just really spoke from somebody who, or try to speak as somebody who worked in Lynn Valley, who lived uh, in North Vancouver for many years. And it troubled me to see my neighbors in such distress and to see what they went through that afternoon. So, you know, the the key is, I guess, is to have a lot of support, uh, supports in place. I have a lot of good friends, colleagues, and family that are there for you to listen to you and to talk it out. Mental health is a huge issue these days, not just in policing, not just that I hit. And and we need to connect. We need to connect. We need to uh, talk about things. Because when you you know when you keep it up, uh, that, that's not good. It, it's going to that that negative energy needs to go somewhere, right? And if if you keep it to yourself, um, it, it's not going to turn out well. I um, I've kept you longer than I said I would, but and I still haven't. Uh, there's some other issues that, that I, I wanted to touch on, but I'll let you go. <laughs> um, I, I appreciate this insight that you've given us as to your work and, and to you as well. And um, I hope we can continue the conversation in the future. Uh, thanks for your time today, Frank. Sounds great. Pleasure. Thanks, Joe. The Twitter handle for more is at the Frank Jang. Sergeant Frank Jang, join me on the line from Surrey in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Plunkett.